You may remember a certain controversy that bubbled up within Google in 2018. It was one of many around that time. The company was developing a censored version of its search engine for China. It was known as Project Dragonfly. The move caused an uproar within the company, and employees said it caused a moral concern for Google. The fervor came about two months after Honey Rosenblum, a new Google employee, started at the company. A couple of Honey's friends quit over that incident. It seemed that there really needed to be a better structure for us to have pushback. But I didn't know how to go about doing that. I didn't know how I could do anything. I was super new at this massive organization. I felt like I was still sort of getting my feet under me. That changed this week. Honey joined more than 200 Google employees who announced a move that turned heads across the tech industry. They formed a union. The Alphabet Workers Union, in fact. The move was unusual to say the least. Unions are typical in manufacturing jobs or service positions, nurses and teachers, but not tech. There's actually a reason for that that we'll talk about later. On this week's episode of The Informations 411, we speak to tech workers that have played a role in recent union organizing efforts. Because, as I reported this week, tech firms and employees should understand what's going on here. The union representatives I talked to this week said they've had talks with employees in nearly all the large tech companies about forming similar unions. Then, in our second segment, we really couldn't get through this week without talking about the historic day in D.C. on Wednesday, as an angry mob of supporters of President Trump ambushed the Capitol. Corey Weinberg talked to Alex Heath about how Facebook and Twitter handled President Trump's incitement of that violence. Their responses to suspend Trump's account or take down his posts also came after employee activism. But first, let's go more to the unions. So the group forming a minority union this week is only a slice of the 130,000-person company. Honey said about 1,000 employees could be joining their union by the end of the week. Now, this isn't a classic union that you might associate with dock workers or teachers where it's recognized by a national labor board and has exclusive bargaining rights with management, but that doesn't mean it won't try to have impact on management. Firstly, the Alphabet Workers Union is associated with the National Labor Union, the Communication Workers of America. And Alphabet workers say they will fight for more equal treatment of contract workers and a larger voice on company strategy, particularly around issues concerning security and human rights. We are able to perform a lot of various collective actions from just simply sending a targeted email at a certain point in time to an executive, to walkouts, to sit-ins. If, you know, on the extreme end, there are strikes. The ability to mobilize and coordinate uh, and disseminate information across the entire labor force of Alphabet in a quick and efficient manner is really where our power comes from. But Honey admits it's a little scary for employees. Honey is a diversity, equity, and inclusion analyst at Google. They just got involved last month in the organizing efforts, which have been going on for the past year or so. Employees have used encrypted apps and had to organize remotely. Honey moved from the Bay Area to Dallas amid the pandemic to be closer to their mom. There are distractions, like barking dogs. Chong, come here. This is the first time that I have personally, um, like, taken a stand like this. And this is a trillion-dollar company that we've seen retaliate against people without hesitation. And that's, that's frightening. First, we should talk a bit about how we got here. It isn't quite right to say that unionizing is completely new to tech. In the 90s and the 2010s, there were pushes among subcontracted service workers like janitors and security guards to unionize. But for the types of employees that you might think of as typical tech workers, like software engineers, marketers, HR specialists, people like that, unionizing hasn't been all that appealing. That's partly because many didn't even consider themselves workers at all. I spoke about that with Ben Tarnoff. Ben is a tech worker and helps run the online resource Collective Action in Tech, which catalogs Collective Action in Tech. He 
He said that earlier efforts by subcontractors have inspired what's going on now. Through these relationships that they are building with their subcontracted colleagues, they are able to better understand what collective action looks like, what are the mechanics, what are the strategies involved, and also, even more importantly, in these experiences, they are starting to think of themselves as workers. In other words, through these relationships, they're gaining access to the worker identity, which would become very important in the mobilizations that they would undertake in the years to come. But there's more to it. In fact, one of the common lines of criticism that came out after the Alphabet Union was announced is that all this kind of feels off. Tech workers are well-paid, have nice perks, they're not exactly coal miners. The whole idea of them wanting the same kind of unions and protections that other workers get seems kind of risible. But as Ben sees it, the fact that tech workers haven't unionized and the fact that they get great perks isn't exactly a coincidence. From the very beginning, leadership of Silicon Valley, from its origins decades ago, was very keen to adopt management practices that would discourage collective action, that would discourage unionization. And these run the gamut from stock-based compensation, so making employees feel that they have something at stake in the profitability of the firm to things like nice amenities, the kind of things we associate with a Google campus today, right? Nice snacks, good kombucha, that sort of thing. So union busting through massages and cold pressed juices. It's not exactly Pinkertons. Anyway, this all started to fall apart in recent years for a couple of reasons. One was the unionizing of contract workers, like we mentioned. The other was something that's been inextricably linked to tech. It's idealism that these companies exist for the common good. But as time went on and these companies became more powerful and insanely profitable, something like Google's don't be evil motto seemed quaint. Then of course, there was the election of Donald Trump. This is a moment when more people are joining this conversation about what are we building? Who are we building it for? What are the social harms of these products? And what can we do to mitigate these harms? One of the few tech firms where employees have formed a union is Kickstarter the funding platform for creative projects. It's a decade-old, 100-person Brooklyn-based company that isn't your typical tech firm. It's a public benefits corporation, meaning it is obligated to make decisions on what's best for society rather than shareholders. Kickstarter itself, the platform itself, is a tool for collective action. That's Clarissa Redwine, who worked at Kickstarter from 2016 to 2019. It's uh, someone coming and saying they want to bring something to life and make the world a more interesting place. And they can't do it alone, so a bunch of other people join in, pitch in, and help them build whatever it is they want to bring into the world. So, yeah, Kickstarter was absolutely primed for organizing. She helped lead employees' initial foray into organizing. Employees were interested. It didn't hurt that Kickstarter created company's motto and hired people that looked for injustices in the world. So Google's, Google's internal motto is don't be evil. Kickstarter's was fuck the monoculture. So I feel like the people who joined Kickstarter and really, uh, really embraced that internal motto. Employees elected a collective bargaining committee, certified its union last February, eventually got management to recognize it. It did see some immediate positive results in the eyes of workers there. When the company made sweeping layoffs amid the pandemic last spring, the union was able to negotiate four months of severance pay, a high number. But other tech firms like Alphabet might not take such traditional steps. Theirs is a minority union. It doesn't have collective bargaining power yet, and it might not ever. But in some sense, what Alphabet workers are trying to do is even more radical. 
Like the complaints over Project Dragonfly, they're asking for input over strategy. That is to say, they want to say in whether a client that Google does work for, say the military, is good for the world, regardless of whether it's good for business. Before the union was formed, Google workers successfully lobbied Google to drop a military project, Project Maven. But can they do more? There is some historical precedence for this, although not a ton. And it hasn't shown itself to be all that successful. In the 1970s, workers at a UK aerospace firm demanded that as part of a restructuring, they reconsider what projects they work on. Here's Ben Tarnoff again. And the workers developed a plan and said, you know what, we want to build these 150 socially useful products, products that were aimed at things like renewable energy, instead of building jet engines. And we want to essentially run the factories in order to build these products. Now that effort failed, but it gives you some sense of this longer tradition of worker control that I think the Google organizers are tapping into. And it has to be said that within the tech and business world, there is a lot of skepticism that the Alphabet Workers Union will be successful on that front. But for Honey and the group of Alphabet employees, there's a ton of hope. This is a new day for their employer and for the tech world as a whole, where employees have a say in strategy, fairness, and more. I think that we are going to be growing a lot in the coming months. We are going to be training folks, and we're going to be able to stand in solidarity with another can't really predict the future, but I'm hopeful and I'm confident because I know that when we fight together, we win. We all witnessed shocking events on Wednesday. A mob of supporters of the president forced their way into the Capitol building on the same day that congressmen were due to certify the election of Joe Biden. President Donald Trump has been contesting that election, uh, at times inciting supporters to help him overturn it. Facebook and Twitter, two of Trump's favorite communication tools, of course, were in the middle of it. And employees at those companies were having a say, too. This is Corey Weinberg, a reporter for The Information, and I'm joined now by my colleague, Alex Heath, who covers both of those companies. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Alex, as we're speaking Thursday afternoon, we have some real-time policy shifts from Facebook and Twitter about how they're handling Trump's posts. What's what's going on as, as we speak and, and set a little bit of the groundwork for us? Yeah, Wednesday, the day that this um, mob storm the Capitol was a flashpoint in terms of content moderation and particularly how these big tech platforms handle the president. Um, it's really the first time we've seen these platforms take such a harsh stance against any president, much less uh, the U.S. president. And there's no playbook for some of this stuff. And they're all kind of operating in the Wild West and they're all unregulated in terms of how they approach this. And so you see that play out where Facebook initially put its label, you know, it's label on Trump's video where he said the election was stolen and basically said he loved the people who were breaking into the Capitol and, and causing violence. And then Facebook labeled it initially with kind of something that was pretty vague and linked to their election center results showing, you know, Biden as the president-elect. Uh, that label actually changed three times, I think, within an hour. It got a little more forceful in its language. So you could almost like feel Facebook internally realizing they needed to take a harder stance. And then an hour later, they just took the video down altogether uh, or right around the time that Twitter did as well. And 
Then hours later, we get a statement that they are for the first time that I've ever seen, um, certainly with a with a elected official going to block Trump from posting for the next 24 hours. And then um, after, as I reported, a lot of employees were actually just calling for them to just ban Trump altogether. The next day, um, Facebook says that they're going to keep Trump from being able to post on Facebook for the next two weeks, basically through the inauguration. Uh, and then indefinitely after that. So it's just a kind of remarkable <laughs> state we're in where this is the main way that Trump communicates with his followers. And I would say, you know, Twitter gets an outsized part of the attention here just because that's where the media gets it and disseminates it. And it's certainly it's very important. I'm not saying his Twitter account isn't important, but Facebook is really where he marshals his his followers and more of his, you know, his voters and um, supporters and then groups are there and all that. And they his comments are funneled into there. Um, so Facebook's actions are pretty remarkable, I would say, um, from, and so, yeah, it's, we're in this kind of unprecedented, uncharted territory now. I'm curious, you know, they are writing the rule book, as you said, like there's no, do the reaction from employees, which, which you wrote about this week, you know, sort of calling on Facebook to ban Trump, you know, in, in work forums, is the company attuned to employee sentiment in making these decisions, or do you think they're they are following a kind of playbook uh, of rules that they're they're looking at? I think they're very attuned to it. I think at the end of the end of the day, you know, these employees next to their user base is all these you know it's all these companies. It's what they have, right? It's their kind of most prized asset, and talent and tech is very competitive and people have a lot of options. I think uh, they do listen to a degree, but like I'm, I've been covering Facebook long enough to remember this whole cycle in 2016, you know, when Trump was talking about his immigration ban and kicking Muslims out of the country, there was a giant uproar internally. I remember reporting on at the time where employees were asking Zuckerberg to ban Trump. And so this is like almost just the perfect like way to uh, put a, put a ribbon on the last four years I guess this last, you know, this last thing where where Trump was basically inciting violence in, in the Capitol was enough for Facebook to think that they need to do something stronger. Um, and whether that is a good thing for society or not in the long run, I think um, the jury is out on. Yeah. Well, the writing is also on the wall that he's not going to be in office for longer and whatever dance that they were playing. You know, I think it it obviously what they have done is say, you know, particularly for political figures, they, they, they aren't going to be in a place in, in censoring political speech. You know, you hear that a lot. And, and that's under, I mean, I've always kind of understood like why they would want to stay out of that racket. But do you think sort of the experience of going through the Trump era is going to have much fallout, particularly for, for Facebook and Twitter? Like where do you, how do you see these companies as being changed? I think this is probably going to be one of the most important stories and kind of internet platforms to follow is um, you're just going to see this stuff heat up and, and it's only going to get more intense, especially if, you know, when we have a democratic administration, which has been very vocal and, and the Biden camp has been very vocal that Facebook needs to take more stuff down, do more content moderation. And I guess I'm of the opinion that, um, you know, the speech is not necessarily going to go away. Like it's not just going to disappear if Facebook or Twitter say it's not allowed. You know, I was kind of struck by how, you know, my Twitter feed was like just collectively shocked and horrified, rightfully so, about what was unfolding yesterday. But 
if you went to Parler, which is, you know, this social network for the alt-right or Gab, you knew this was coming. Like it was being organized. Like th- this has been, they've been, this has been talked about for weeks and months leading up to this. So Trump's been actually laying it out himself in public. So I think what happens is like the internet gets balkanized. It doesn't basically people who feel that their views are being um, oppressed on a platform whether it's the right thing to do or not, we'll go somewhere else. They won't just like stop talking. You know, I could just see a future where even if Trump is back on Twitter, he tweets, hey, just come join me on Parler or I'm not going to get booted off this platform again. And then uh, we basically end up in a world where people of certain ideologies don't talk to each other and don't see what the others are saying until um, it leads to real world violence, potentially. In true fashion, the internet continues to reflect the real world. Yeah, the internet's acted like a steroid into this phenomenon of of that, of the just the divisions in America and the rest of the world. And there's certainly, I think a lot of employees want Facebook to make structural platform level changes to how it does, you know, algorithmic amplification, right? So maybe it's okay if Trump says something that's very inflammatory, but it's not shown in people's news feeds, right? If they don't go seek it out. Which platforms like Snap that are a little more closed and then have more curated public, ver- you know, parts of their apps are already doing. So I think the bigger platforms will gravitate more towards that, where the the algorithms and the the amplification of of content will be more closely scrutinized, and maybe we'll even see legislation around that, where if a company does um, amplify content, and I've seen very smart people argue for this, even ex Facebook employees that. Uh, you know, a company should be potentially liable for, for the outcome of something it amplifies. Um, so maybe we get to that point. Um, but I think the overall effect is just, and Mark Zuckerberg himself has been saying this for the last couple of years, is that people are just going to increasingly gravitate towards private chats, encrypted messaging, where companies can't even see what they're sharing. And then we're in potentially an even scarier situation. Right. Well, thanks for giving us uh, a little bit of a peek into how this can get even scarier, Alex. Um, uh, but thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks. That's today's episode. Thanks to Honey, Ben, Clarissa for chatting with us, Corey Weinberg for helping me put it all together, and for chatting with Alex Heath. This episode was produced by Ariella Markowitz. Happy start of the new year, everybody. See you back here next time.